Hi, and welcome to Responsa Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, Executive Vice President at Hadar, here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Yeshiva at Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. Okay, so this is a juicy question that we get to take on today, a mouthwatering question, perhaps, or maybe not, depending on who you are and how you feel about it. I would say we are always addressing questions of Jewish law in modern times, but this one is is particularly contemporary question that we have right now. My taste buds are tantalized. Here's the question. I recently read that the OU, the Orthodox Union, refused to grant a hexer to Impossible Pork, a new line of products from the Impossible Meat Company. The food is entirely vegetable-based and contains no actual pork. Why would they refuse to hexure this product? And can I still eat hexured bacon bits? I like that at the end there. I hear the tone of panic there. So what's up with this? First of all, are you an impossible meat eater? Has that made its way into your life? Yeah, I'm more of a beyond guy, but I have had impossible. But I do eat these products, yes, with some regularity. Yeah, I have to say the same, actually. Having tried both our family I would say we've picked the Beyond camp. In particular, the Beyond meatballs are a favorite in our house. That's my particular recommendation. Um, And we know that we've had kosher impossible meat, and now we will not have impossible pork that is hexured. So what's up with that? Yeah, this is big. I've seen everyone talking about this and going crazy about it uh, and getting very agitated. Well, let's see if we can give a little bit of framing on this. You know, this is a podcast about Jewish law, about halakha, um, but sometimes you have to begin the answer to a question with some agada, <laughs> with some midrash, with some sort of narrative frame. And this feels to me like one of those questions, meaning I don't think you can get to any orientation on a bottom line practical pathway with a question like this without first doing a gut check of what's bothering you, what's animating you on a level that goes way beyond the details. So I hope this will be helpful. I want to actually start us off by um, two texts that feel to me like they are in tension about this question. And let's just spend a couple minutes just on them. Okay, text number one comes from the Sifra, which is one of the early rabbinic commentaries on the book of Vayikra, book of Leviticus. And uh, it features a statement by Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, where he says the following. A person should not say, I don't want to eat pork. We're going right to it. Rather, a person should say, if she, boy, do I want to. But what can I do? God told me that I can't. And by being poresh min ha'avera, by separating out from the sin, the person kind of more fully receives upon themselves the yoke of divine sovereignty. So the the text here um, is, is sort of giving you a guidance on how to think. And... This, to me, captures 
one mentality around these questions. And again, I say I'm, I'm not really right now voting for or against either of these. I just want to name them. One orientation is that of Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah in the Sifra, who says, actually, one essential piece of the religious life is to feel that there are restrictions that hold you back from doing things you know you would enjoy. And by restricting yourself in that way, you have a posture of serving God. You know, I just think for our purposes, this is a great, it's a goldmine text of it literally says pork, right? Basar chazir. And so one orientation is like, you should go through life feeling like you want to eat pork, but that actually the privilege on some level of not eating pork and having this moment where you say, no, I can't eat that because it's pork is a central piece of how you serve God. Right. That's actually part of the experience is being confronted with it and having to choose not to eat it. That's right. And you'll lose it if you don't have that desire. If you don't almost cultivate that desire, you will lose that part of the religious life. Second text is from Vayikra Rabbah, and it plays with um, the text that many of us say every single morning uh, from the book of Tehillim. Hashem Matir Asurim. God literally frees the bound, frees prisoners. But of course, an Asur is not just a prisoner, but someone who is forbidden from doing something. So this Midrash is going to read Hashem Matir Asurim as God permits things to those who are forbidden. All right, what does that mean? Everything that I have forbidden to you, I have permitted to you. And then we get an incredible list. Hey, you know how you're not allowed to eat that forbidden fat, the suet in a behemah, in a domesticated animal? It would have had to be burned on the altar, and even now without an altar, you can't eat it? Yeah, but you're allowed to eat that same part of the animal in a chaya, in a wild animal like a deer. So if you're worried, oh man, I'm going to miss out on eating chalev, that forbidden fat, no problem. Just have it in the in the deer as opposed to the cow. Hey, you've always, this one's a little more gruesome, you've always wanted to eat an animal without slaughtering it? You can do that with a fish because there's no requirement to slaughter a fish. That's fascinating. I've forbidden you to eat pork, but I permitted you to eat the tongue of a fish. Now, they seem to be talking about a certain kind of fish that they were aware of that had a tongue who, I presume from some kind of Gentile corroboration, <laughs> they found out, tasted like pork. And this Midrash is bragging. That's the impossible pork of the day. That's it. Exactly. Wow. This is directly it. So, right, if we want to translate it idiomatically, Vayikaraba is saying, I forbade you pork. But I gave you impossible pork. They go on, they say, oh, you feel terrible. You want to eat blood? Guess what? You're allowed to eat the pancreas of an animal. And it's full of blood. It'll taste just like blood. You'll get the experience. Oh, you want to eat meat and milk? You're allowed to eat the udder of an animal. And the udder mixes the flesh of the animal with the milk remains that are in. All right, all of these could spawn their whole own response to radio episodes. But... For our purposes, exactly as you said, we have a text here that says, don't be upset about pork. 
I gave you impossible pork. For them, it's the tongue of the fish. For us, it's impossible <laughs> foods. Um, but this is a totally different orientation. This is saying, no, no, no. The dietary laws are a discipline, but they are actually not meant to lower your overall kind of orientation uh, of pleasure and experience in the world. Basically, as like a dietary law observing Jew, uh, no problem. You can experience basically just about everything that anyone else can. And so I, I wanted to highlight these two texts right at the outset because, first of all, I think it's like a fascinating contrast, right? It's really two different ways of, of thinking about this. Um, but also, I think the cultural debate playing out over impossible pork right now is just a latter-day version of this ancient discussion, right? Like, it's basically um, how comfortable do we feel with, you know, quote-unquote, evading restrictions, do we feel like, well, that's terrible. I'm actually knocking out one of the legs of the table on which religious discipline and experience, you know, stands? Or, no, I'm actually, like, fulfilling, you know, with the partnership with the divine, uh, some basic notion of Hashem Matir Asurim, uh, God wants me to enjoy things in this world. It's not a free-for-all. Yeah, you're not allowed to eat pork. But that's not because I'm intending to make you live an ascetic life where you're deprived of something. It's That's not what Jews eat in the world. We eat other things. Maybe we even help develop other foods that are the same. So if you ask me, I come out much more on the Vayikra Rabbah side than the Sifra side, personally. Remind us which is which for the listeners who didn't Follow. I come out more on this side of um, you can enjoy just about everything on an equivalent level. A life of mitzvot is not a life of denial. It's a life of structure, purpose, direction. Just personally, right? That's where I where I come out on it. Um, not that I don't appreciate the first text and not that I don't, I'm not saying I don't have moments where I don't experience self-denial as being meaningful. But as a general orientation, um, it does lead my sympathies in a, you know, in a case like this to say, yeah, impossible pork, you know, that should be fine. But the reason I laid out this tension is I really do understand people who come from the orientation of that first text and feel like they will lose something if they don't have that boundary. I think there may be the life experience element of this, of how much do you experience kashrut as resisting things that is just different for people who live their lives differently. There, there are Jews who live now with basically all of their community. You know, everybody in your family is kashrut observant. Everybody in your social circle is kashrut observant. Everybody at your school is kashrut observant. And the part of kashrut, which is saying, I'd like to eat that, but I can't, just doesn't come up very often. And I feel like, I don't know, for my own personal life, it's like most of my extended family is not kashrut observant. And trying to get together with many of my friends is it's not a matter of sitting at a kosher restaurant. And this sort of question of navigating the world of what I can and can't have whether or not I'd like to be eating it. You know, sitting across the table from a burger and saying like, that looks delicious, and now I'm going to eat this salad is a bigger part of my kashrut, I think, than for some people. 
And then in the other direction, I'm sure there are people who don't even have their own kitchen as a place where there's only kosher food. And they're navigating that when they open the fridge every time. And I think that can lead to a very different experience of kashrut. But I also think that people, you know, those different experiences could lead people in different directions. Some of those people might say, and that's horrible. I hate that part of kashrut. And other people might say, that's what makes it meaningful for me. Yeah, I think you're right that those are like interrelated but different axes um, because the question of how much do I experience it as a boundary is one axis. And then how much positive or negative reinforcement do I get from boundaries is a separate question. And that's as much about kind of psychology and inclination as it is about circumstance. I'll say I've been doing an informal survey uh, and thinking about recording this podcast, just, you know, asking different people, what's their inclination around this? And the answers, people give really different answers and it doesn't track. You know, it's not like, well, people who grew up keeping kosher answered this one way or people who are generally more strict in their observance answered this way. You know, people are sort of all over the place in, well, I don't know, I don't care or I'm outraged or, well, I would definitely eat it or I would never eat that. Um, it's sort of an interesting mix. It is a little bit unpredictable. So let's try to maybe go to that. I mean, I, again, I'm beginning with that frame and on some level I'm suggesting, well, I don't know, that feels like it may actually be the whole kitten caboodle here. But the questioner did ask and deserves an answer to like, well, what would even be the theoretical basis for not giving a hechsher to something that's made of a plant. Like, why didn't they? Yeah. So, again, th their answer, at least in the press that I saw, was, uh, if not quoting, you know, these texts we started with, saying, no, there's no concern about the ingredients. We just thought people would freak out too much. We're not even necessarily ruling out that it might happen in the future. We just, we're not doing that right now. So, I don't know that, I I'm not going to try to divine, um, what the OU's, you know, exact basis was or what their path will be. What I feel I can answer is um, here's the set of concerns that might lead you to a restrictive decision. And it's basically the category, which we've talked about in a slightly different mode in another episode of Marita Ayn, of the notion of things that in their substance are fine, but in their appearance are problematic. And in particular, that are problematic uh, in the case we'll talk about because someone will see you doing something and will get the impression that that must be okay because they're relying on you as kind of a fellow Jew community member and they may not have all the information that you have about what you're doing. So they'll think to themselves, I remember that time when Rabbi Avi Killip served me pork chops. That's right. And they won't necessarily remember that they were not real pork. They were impossible. That's right. That's right. So this is, there's a case in the Talmud. It's a little more gross than pork, uh, where Rav says, um, you're not allowed to drink a glass of fish blood. So sad. Now, what's the background here? Blood is forbidden, <laughs> but blood is only forbidden from quadrupeds and birds. Okay. Um other than that, like blood of fish is permitted. That's why you don't have to salt fish uh, in order to prepare it to be kosher or anything like that. But Rav is concerned if you actually collect 
all of the blood. You're not just like eating it in the fish, but you collect it uh, in a glass. That then becomes forbidden. He doesn't say why. He just says it's forbidden. Um, but the commentators all understand it as Rashi puts it as Haroe Omer Mutar Dam. The person who sees uh, that being drunk will say, Oh, I guess you are allowed to consume blood because they won't know that it's fish blood. So that's the prohibition. The Talmud though, has another text which says, Yeah, you're allowed to eat uh, fish blood. Um, and it seems like that includes like pouring up a nice tall glass of fish blood. Um, and so the Talmud resolves and say, here's the difference. When, uh, when Rav forbade it, it's just a glass of fish blood. When there's this other text that says you are allowed to have a glass of fish blood, it's if there are scales in the glass. If you weren't grossed out already before. In other words, if there is a visual indicator of someone will see, oh, I see there's fish scales there. That's fish blood. That's why it's being drunk. If you've got a visual indicator that makes it clear what's happening, then you're good to go. So it's interesting to say, should that lead us to not eat impossible pork? Or should it lead us to say that you have to put the container on the table? But I do think, you know, even for my own kids, we started eating Beyond Meatballs and they eat it with Parmesan cheese. And we didn't really tell them that we switched from meatballs to Beyond Meatballs. And truthfully, we don't necessarily want to emphasize it. Um, but will they someday be like, well, of course I ate meatballs with Parmesan cheese when I was a kid. You know, do they need to actually be told this is not a meatball that you're eating right now. Right. So this, th there's a lot of interesting cases that come up in the wake of this Talmudic passage that are versions of that, the most fun of which uh, is reported by Rav Shlomo Luria and a bunch of other people in, uh, in Poland in the 16th century, where they apparently had a wacky practice on Purim of preparing faux trafe meals. All right. Like part of Purim seems to be they made these weird things that looked like they were not kosher. That sounds kind of fun. It does sound kind of fun. And one of them was they made chicken in almond milk. OK, so they would make this thing that looked like, you know, chicken Parmesan or like whatever it was. I thought almond milk was like a very trendy new thing. No, very, very old. Mass produced, it seems to be. Uh, trendy and new, but it's been around for a long time. Um, and the uh, Rav Shlomo Luria um, says, well, that's fine, but you need to make sure that you put almonds in the almond milk around the chicken, which is the version of the scales here, right? right? And what you're describing about the margarine package uh, is the same thing. You got to put something there so people have a visual. Again, that seems to be the key, a visual of what's going on. So whole discussion on that, you know, uh, arguing over when do you have to do that? Um, the, the most, I think, uh, salient and powerful uh, articulation of this is offered by Rav Yonatan Eibschutz. And uh, he is, uh, you know, a, a bit a bit later than uh, than Rav Shlomo Luria, and he is attacking uh, the need to put almonds in the almond milk. 
He yeah. says that that is totally unnecessary. And he says, why? He says, the only reason that the Talmud requires you to put scales in the fish blood is the fish blood at the end of the day is blood. It is blood from another animal. It's like a different type of the same thing. So you have to distinguish it. He says, I don't know how a lot of uh, contemporary vegans would feel about this. He says, is almond milk milk? Are you out of your mind? It's from a plant. It's not anything to do with milk. It's just because it looks like milk. We call it that. But that doesn't mean it's really milk. And therefore, the whole concern of Marita Ayin should not apply when the thing is something entirely different. Now, in a way, this goes back to the Vayikra Rabbah, which is no one in that text ever said, well, you can't eat the fish tongue because people will think it's pork. It's a fish tongue. It's not anything like pork. Even there, it's an animal, right? Uh, Rav Yonatan Ibeshutz is saying we should really limit this whole concern of Marita Ayin to things that are very close relatives of one another, not things that have somehow been synthesized or produced to resemble. I walked into a room once and someone was making bacon and they said, it's not real bacon. You don't need to freak out. It's not real bacon. And it was turkey bacon. So it was not kosher turkey bacon. And it was like, that feels to me like it hits exactly on this. It's like, okay, it's not real bacon, but I still can't have it. And once you tell me it's not real bacon and you think, Avi, don't freak out, you can't have bacon, I know, but this isn't real bacon, is like, you know, or you might say about a turkey burger or something, that's actually more dangerous than saying it's a tofu bacon or it's pea protein, impossible pork, where actually I'm totally fine. I'm not actually at risk of eating something. Right. I mean, according to Rav Yonatan Ibeschutz, beef bacon would probably be more problematic than impossible bacon because you'd say, well, it is an animal. Yeah, I just needed to have the scales, right? I need a big picture of a cow on the table when I serve it. Now there too, I don't know. He didn't confront this case. He might say, no, like a cow is totally not a pig. Uh, But you could imagine saying, yeah, but it's still an animal product. And there we want to be more careful. But with a plant product, you don't have to at all. Um, This doesn't get totally resolved. I want to zoom out for a minute and look at it really big picture. I've read interesting takes on this, actually, in the past few months from both Rabbi Shmuley Yankowitz and from Dr. David Svi Kalman. And they come out in different directions, actually. One thinks it should be hectured. And one thinks it shouldn't be hectured, but both of them seem to look at the world right now and say, this isn't just a question of what's on your plate. There is a change happening in society where fake meat is actually starting to replace real meat. And they're both seeing it as a tipping point. David Svikalman even mentions that you can actually buy an Impossible Burger now at Burger King. Um, And I know it's also true at Dunkin' Donuts. You can buy Impossible Meat in the store. That's unheard of until now. And if we are at some societal tipping point where Impossible Meat could be readily available and maybe even replace pork in the world, does that mean we have to think about this in a very different way on a sort of systemic what is kashrut kind of level that maybe takes us out of the particular glass of fish blood that we're drinking? Yeah, well, in a way, I think this is going to go back to the sources we started with, which is 
do you see the end goal as being, uh, you know, following the Torah's rules while being able to enjoy as much as possible of everything that's out there? Um, in which case, that's it's only good. It's only good that there's more and more stuff out there. Again, putting aside the specific things of like, okay, what are the what are still the kashrut uh, considerations around, you know, getting an impossible whopper, right? There might still be complications in an institution that has all kinds of non-kosher meat there. But speaking broadly, um, you know, it might be like, well, if the whole world switched over, if the whole world became vegetarian, wouldn't that be a victory on some level for the Torah's substantive agenda? Um, we don't say, darn, too many people have become monotheists. We have to invent a new category of idolatry in order to have heretics that we hunt, right? No, in theory, if you, if you stand for things and you think they're, uh, they're important and you want to live your life according to them, what's bad about more people being in sync with them? On the other hand, though, if you're like, but I need and want the boundary drawing, and I just feel like if all the meat boundaries disappear, what am I going to do? Um, okay, your, your disposition may have a harder time with that. Now, you know, even there, I think it's worth kind of questioning and probing a little. Do we actually need the boundary of forbidding impossible pork? Or the boundaries we're talking about are other things, which is how do we, you know, figure out who's in our community or in ways I don't always love, but people are drawing plenty of boundaries today around politics and, you know, other ways in which they are separating from other people. I don't know that fetishizing something that's imitation pork has to be the way of drawing that. But as I said, like, I, I also, I also get it. Um, I can't comment on what the OU did or what they should or shouldn't do. Um, as a reflection of the fact that they feel apparently they have enough of a constituency for whom it would be too destabilizing to completely authorize this move. Uh, I get it. And I think in that piece you're referring to uh, by Dudsby Kalman, which I enjoyed very much, I think he asked some important larger questions beyond the local piece here, which is, well, how much does you know Jewish society and practice get completely redrawn? by technology. Um, and you do have to sometimes stop and say, well, how do I want to structure, you know, my space in this world? And some people are clearly choosing this product, you know, as one moment where they're going to do that. Right. Which gives us two questions. One is, do I want to draw lines? And then the second is, is this where I want to draw the line? Um, and then people get into the like, well, I don't understand why Impossible Pork is on one side of the line and bacon bits are on the other side of the line. But once we get down to that level, it's it's almost a quibble because the bigger and more substantive question here in terms of thinking broadly about halakha is, do we need lines? Or if it's not pork, we can just go indefinitely in this direction. And even if the whole world goes indefinitely in this direction. Yeah, I would just add to that, I would say, to kind of give us clear picture to the listeners as we can. Th there's no issue, and really the OU said as much as well, there is no issue with hechshering a product like impossible pork um, in the sense that there are no ingredients issues whatsoever. and as long as you have addressed the marita ayin concerns and you feel like either 
everyone knows that things are synthesized from different things today, or it's called impossible pork, <laughs> not pork. Um, or maybe you would be strict and say, I always put the wrapper out on the table whenever I serve it, provided you've addressed that. There's really no technical issue. I think, again, what's interesting about this question is not everything that is technically uh, permitted is necessarily something that everyone wants to do. Right. I think the other thing I'd maybe just end on is this is a case that really brings into clarity that what has a hexer and what is kosher are not necessarily overlapping categories in all moments. That when people are saying, well, I don't understand, why is this food not kosher? That may actually be a different question than the OU didn't say the food is kosher. The, the OU didn't say the food is not kosher. They said, we're not going to give our hexer to this. We're not putting our name on it and our seal of approval, maybe because there are other considerations beyond just the question of, is this food kosher? Um, it doesn't mean they think that if you eat it, you actually violated kashrut. They're just not going to be the ones to check the factory to tell you the answer to that question. And I think sometimes in our modern kashrut world, we get lazy where we think that actually a hexer is the answer to whether or not something is kosher. And this just helps remind us that there is a broader context to both. That's right. All right. Thanks. Responsor Radio is a project of the Hadar Institute. This episode was produced by Sam Greenberg and Jeremy Tabak. Our audio engineer for this episode was David Chabinski. Have a halachic question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at halacha at hadar.org. H-A-L-A-K-H-A-H at hadar.org. Would you like to sponsor an episode of Responsor Radio? Looking at you, impossible meat. Email radio at hadar.org.